Cobalt headquarters in San Francisco, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my good friend and colleague, Ty Sabano. Ty and I met at a BSIM conference when I was at Sigital leading BSIM assessments, and he was leading application security for Capital One Financial. He built his information security career at a variety of financial services organizations and has also done work in the retail and technology sectors. More recently, Ty has been branching out as an industry leader, career coach, and technology advisor, and is currently the head of security at Periscope Data. He specializes in the areas of software security, DevOps, and security engineering, he also attributes a lot of his focus areas today around the vertical of security culture. Ty, welcome to our podcast. Carolyn, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to chat, but this is our first time doing it in a, like a recorded fashion, so I'm really excited for this opportunity. I know. Usually we're meeting around like dim sum or ramen. I feel like we're always... <laughs> Lots of food and coffee and snacks. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is actually probably only our second not in-person meeting ever. I think that's a very valid point. This is like the second time we've actually just been on a call. And even when you were at Sigital, I don't think we had any calls. We uh, just hung out in person. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was, that was part of the magic too, is that I, I think I ended up making a lot of social connections and ultimately uh, really great human sort of connections, right? And I think that's the element I really enjoyed and appreciate about the BSIM community is I made a lot of friends and connections that weren't reliant on the functional aspect of doing business or exchanging, you know, money for time. It, you know, eventually maybe it leads into that, which is always awesome. But I think the element was you, you genuinely crafted real relationships in the community. And I, I commend a lot of that uh, to much of my career success, but also the opportunity to learn from some of the best like yourself. So thank you. My pleasure. So we've kind of actually started on a point which is something I like to really focus on in the Humans of InfoSec podcast, which is, of course, the human element. And yeah. to start our discussion today, I actually, you know, we work in this field where a lot of the time we're sitting in front of a computer screen. I actually want to open it up and ask you to tell me a little bit about something else in your life, which is fighting. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into Muay Thai and what you do with regards to kickboxing and coaching in sort of the physical world that has yeah. nothing to do with what you do for work? Yeah, so I think this is one of those really interesting things that um, from childhood to, you know, manhood or where I'm at now as an individual, it's been a developmental journey. Uh, but when it came to kind of commingling uh, this aspect of my life, I actually separated it out often, um, especially in financial services. I, I still firmly believe there's a kind of stigma with people that do kickboxing or contact sports in general. Um, and, and I always kept it kind of private. Uh, but by and large, there would, there would be these times where I would get a call from a friend or a text and they're like, hey, did I just see you in a ring on a corner standing next to a fighter on the show I'm watching? I'm like, perhaps. I'm like, why are you asking? You know, it's it always very strange. But, you know, it's one of those things where martial arts important to me. I, I grew up in Japan on a military air base. I'm half Japanese and I grew up in that sort of samurai bushido culture. And 
You know, my mom could tell you about the amount of t-shirts I've ruined by, you know, emulating these samurai films. And a big part of it for me was that continuous developmental journey. Like you're never going to be the best version of you when it comes to martial arts. There's always going to be someone that will be bigger, badder, stronger, maybe even younger and faster. And I think an element for me is the constant growth, uh, the ability to never stop learning. So with it, um, as I had gone through teenage years of focusing on various traditional martial arts, as I became probably in my early 20s, I started focusing on Muay Thai and kickboxing, um, dealt with grappling and some other forms, but uh, this is something I've really latched onto. And a lot of it uh, can be built around the relational aspect of martial arts. A lot of people think it's an individual sport if you get in a ring and fight, but it's very much a team-oriented sport, and there's a lot of things that are magical that come out of it. So I met my wife, I met my best friend, I met a lot of new friends along the way, and the journey has just been amazing. And, and while I stay humble through the process, I, I also get humbled um, at the same time. And for me, you know, I think one of the, the big elements we can definitely get into in a little bit, uh, uh, I was an okay fighter uh, as an amateur, but I was a great coach, I think. Um, I, I'm very much into the element of harnessing the relationship, finding what is the identity of that person, that individual, and focusing on those strengths and building upon them and then figuring out a game plan if they have a big fight or a known fighter that, that is well known with a lot of video and then you develop strategy around it. But for me, it's, it's that connectivity with another person um, that, that you're really trying to achieve this massive goal. And a lot of people don't realize is that like that nine to 15 minutes of fighting, it's, it's the result of eight to 10 weeks, sometimes three months, sometimes six months of training for this, this event. And it's a culmination of a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and hard-pressed situations that you're working through to really get to this moment. And when everything goes right and you get the victory, it's, it feels really great to share that moment with someone that's really put it on the line and stepped in the ring. And as a coach, um, you, know, you can only ask for someone to try their best uh, in those moments. Uh, but you know, I, I think if I take a step back, and you know, we, we've kind of chatted about this before, but there, there are really things I think I've taken away when it comes to kind of what I've taken from coaching uh, within kickboxing to being a professional within information security. Uh, number one, you absolutely have to have the confidence uh, within yourself to go into these situations. It's no different than going into a penetration test or an ethical assessment. Like you have to be prepared. You have to have the knowledge, the wisdom. The last thing you want to do is send someone in uh, that doesn't have the experience or that is not prepared and they're just getting sent to the lion's den and the result is going to be what it is and you're not going to be happy uh, with the damage, the implications, the social impact to the, the persona of the person. Um, the second thing is I think understanding kind of how you communicate. And I think within... You know, most combat boxing, kickboxing, MMA, uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that high stress level of all that work, you now have 60 seconds in between each round to communicate and articulate what went well, what didn't go well, and what are we going to work on? And some people end up just swearing expletives, um, slapping their fighter. I'm not, I'm not really in that mindset. I'm more into... Let's figure out what works for that individual. Understand their persona. Like if, if you're a coach, you should have been there before. 
that moment to relax, bring the heart rate down, bring the body temperature down by using cool towels, feeding them water, cleaning out their mouth guard. There's a process. There's also a semblance of consistency in coming back to home and with your crew, with your comrades. And with it, you, you take that moment to go through, have a full experience of let's breathe. Even if it was a great round, you don't celebrate there because it's not over. If it was a bad round, you don't hide the fact, but you definitely tune your language appropriately to keep them in the to keep them going. And I think that's no different than when we're working on tough projects. But it distills it down into that 60-second interaction. And you know, I think the third thing I kind of got into is the, the agile mindset. Like if it's good, it's bad, you have to be flexible in those moments. You know, when a fighter or an individual comes back and they say, hey, the ring's slippery, you know, that should have been something the coach should have learned in prep. They should have tested out the ring. The ropes are loose. Well, maybe they got loose throughout the evening and you have to understand the bounce that they're going to come off of it. Maybe the lights are really bad and they're burning their feet on the mat. Like these are things that a lot of people know or experience, but there are changes in that event. There are scenarios that happen and you have to adapt and adjust and communicate very effectively when you when you have that interaction. So, I don't know. There, there's a lot of stories, a lot of great opportunities, and you know, there's one fighter in mind that that, that I've really spent the most time with, and that's Francois Ambang. Uh, we've made it up through the the rank of glory kickboxing. Um, he's got an amazing life journey. Uh, that in itself is probably like a two-hour tale that uh, we can unpack at another time, though. Fantastic. Well, we'll definitely have to have you on the podcast again. Um, I think, you know, in during our preparation call yesterday, I thought to myself, we've got so much great content, you know, how do I um, sort of navigate and, and pick out a few gems uh, to share with our listeners today. And I think hearing about your perspective on fighting and particularly coaching um, is just something really interesting that you bring uh, to our industry uh, as a leader. You know, what I'm hearing is there's kind of this two-part thing about a lot of preparation and then being able to, in the moment, determine what the best approach is going to be. And I think that um, that really goes very much along with the theme of the Humans of InfoSec podcast, which is a journey. Um, and that kind of is a nice segue actually into learning about your security journey. Um, you know, how did you, how did you get into the field in the first place? You know, I think a big part of it's luck, a big part of it's timing, but I still reflect back on even my high school days of doing, you know, I'm doing air quotes, uh, security research, playing around on the internet. Uh, my first computer was a Commodore 64 when I was, I think, seven or eight years old, but um, it's always been an interest and my parents always helped harness interest by not really being super involved, but by creating opportunities. Like my dad was terrible at using computers, but he bought me one. And he said, I don't know what you're going to do with it, but I want you to be exposed to these elements. And I think that's something I really appreciate about him. Um, but from there, um, it just kind of grew. Like uh, as, as I had opportunity, as I created those moments, I also had an educational support system. So, um, you know, my high school had great programs from uh, computer graphics to AutoCAD to electronics where we were building robots and I was geeking out uh, with seniors as I'm like a sophomore in high school. Um, but it gave me a lot of exposure early on to electronics and technology and the security mindset I think is really what is important to security professionals. It's 
trying to understand why something works and then how to get it to do something that should for your benefit and your gain. And I, I think that's an element I've been kind of interested in is how do you gain something? How do you hack something? How do you get around the, the expected controls? Um, so for me, the journey really started, I think, at that teenage time period. But as I progressed into real education, I got my undergrad at Penn State University, uh, College of Information Science and Technology, third class through, uh, focus was on security. And I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with that degree. I was really nervous at the very end because security itself wasn't a highly paid career. It was still kind of in the, the dark back corner in security labs. So when I finally graduated, I jumped into a company called Pertivity as a security consultant. And I really have to thank one of my early mentors, um, you know, Ariel Isbackrack, uh, we don't talk that often. Um, I see him on Twitter all the time, but you know, he was my first hardcore mentor that, that gave me a lot of knowledge around penetration testing. Um, so much so that he allowed me to go succeed on my own later on. So as part of the model there, there was a, a main lab that we would do security work in. And as part of it, you would go through basically this boot camp under Ari. And over the course of, I wanna say, you know, two and a half, three months, he would take you through all these things, all these explanations. You know, you would get tested on like Etsy shadow. You would have to break into the room. So one of the first fundamental things, if you want to start this process, you have to physically break into this room. And I'm like, huh. And it was just a little key combo lock on the door, but that was part of his challenge. And I, I've adapted a lot of that from him to folks that want to be mentored. Because I think what he was doing is being intelligent about his time by weeding out those that aren't truly interested. And he created a challenge or a hurdle or a barrier to get to the next stage gate. And he would continually do that until he's like, you know what, you're ready. And uh, when he told me I was ready, I went off on my own within the organization. And uh, eventually I found software security. And with it, I found the vertical of financial services at that time. And this was around 20, 2008. I think financial services was really the top leader when it came to information security practices. They took it the most aggressive and seriously because let's be honest, you know, where are the bank robbers going? Where the money's at? Where are the hackers going? Where the money's at? And I think that was an element where I, I made the pivot over to a wonderful company, JP Morgan Chase, uh, this huge financial institution that trusted, you know, a 24, 25 year old at the time to head up a lot of software security capabilities uh, within their corporate internet group. And I worked for a gentleman named uh, Glenn Foster, who was now the CISO over at TD. Uh, amazing guy, gave me a lot of great opportunities. And one of them was starting static analysis when you know it was a time where it was the wild, wild west. I was using Outs Labs. I met one of my heroes, Bruce Mayhew, early on, who created WebGo. Uh, I met John Stevens for the first time when the BSIM started becoming a thing. Um, and it was a really cool opportunity for me to start to gain a real foothold in understanding continuous security within a deployment environment. I think the, the speed at which we deployed was reasonable for an individual to get through about, you know, I think it was about 19 to 26 internet facing applications at a time. Uh, but eventually I made a decision and I jumped over to Capital One Financial and I, I consider myself to have really grown up there. You know, I took master's while I was there at Norwich University. I got a ton of certifications, which only means so much to me, but, you know, it was a growth path and a goal. Uh, but a big part of it was building the software security program from the ground up. When I got there, it was just penetration testing, a couple of questionnaires. 
Uh, when I left there, it was uh, a team of 20. I built a red team. I built a college and you will hire pipeline for security and partnership with their tech development program, which is phenomenal and really disrupting and changing the culture of Capital One that you see today of one of the most innovative financial institutions out there. And I was given a lot of opportunity to grow with the company. When I joined security, it was 65 of us. And when I left, it was 365. And I think I interviewed maybe 65 to 75% of the staff. And it was just a really amazing experience of the people I worked with, some of the talent I helped grow, uh, but also being grown and being developed at that same time. And a lot of my base and fundamentals of how I manage people, how do I interact, how I communicate, um, I really do have to thank that organization for a lot of it. Um, but after that, I, I made the jump. Uh, after five and a half years, I thought I was getting stale and I, I, I wasn't sure if we were moving at a fast enough speed. I uh, went over to Target. Uh, I built out this thing called product security, which was really around transforming the security culture uh, around a compliance-driven functionality to more of an engineering-driven functionality and uh, really having empathy around how engineers technology, how that whole organization works. I learned a lot about supply chain. I learned a lot about uh, payment gateways. I learned a lot about uh, you know the Midwest. Uh, I spent about a year there, uh, but ultimately my wife and I wanted to kind of get out to the West Coast and we made the jump and I made it out to a company called Lending Club. And I spent about 15 months there and I thought I was gonna be there a little bit longer, uh, but I worked on their AppSec program. There was a lot of great work already in place there. Uh, but one of the things I really wanted to work on while I was within that organization was work-life balance, um, as well as, you know, really focusing heads down on application security with a great team of engineers uh, back within a very comfortable space for me, financial technology. Uh, but after about, uh, you know, I would say about the first year, we got to a great place. Uh, the organization was changing. And uh, lo and behold, this company called me and um, it was in the startup realm, and it was something I've been working towards for a long time. And uh, they presented an opportunity, the risk profile around being basically a Mac shop that is all cloud native. So limited tech debt, an amazing product that is bridging the gap between uh, data science and real analytics. So I think, you know, Periscope Data, when they reached out to me, um, it was a, a fun conversation. And then when I came in, uh, I had just a fantastic time where it wasn't adversarial. It was just very inclusive, very open. And I think it was powerful for me when I sat down with the CTO and I had been through so many political uh, experiences in my life. And my question was, how do we see this company successful? How do we make sure business and technology stay aligned? And their story, uh, Tom O'Neill and Harry Glazer, uh, they've been friends since college. And when Tom went back to his story of being in the dorm rooms, I'm like, it took, to me, it blew me away to understand that people were that connected to be a part of something like that or that opportunity where that culture is so strong that I'm going to get the opportunity to help supplement and build with that organization. So uh, it's been a really cool opportunity for me. And I've, I've been kind of granted a lot of, I would say, freedom to interact and have these conversations a little bit more in the open yourself and uh, get out there and talk a little bit more to whereas I think former roles and organizations I didn't really get that chance as often uh, so for me it's paying it forward it's helping it's you know paying respect to folks like Ari Elias Backrack who you know planted a lot of seeds in me and I feel I've grown and I'm trying to do him some justice that's awesome I you know I think it just goes to show that infosec is the type of industry where you can 
do many different types of jobs. I mean, having gone in your career from really establishing yourself at financial services organizations where security teams were in the tens and even the hundreds of people, you know, and then now leading security at a startup where you can personally know every single one of the 140 or so employees. Um, You know, those are very, very different jobs. Um, Ty, can you tell me a little bit, I just want to spend a moment on this topic. I think it's fascinating that, you know, you really sort of built up your security chops in financial services, which, you know, understandably, as you were saying, is sort of, you know, the top, if you will, of the information security industry, you know, security fundamentally is all about protecting value. Where is the vi- Where's the value? It's where it's in the banks. It's where the money is at. How, how would you describe the difference? And, and I know there are so many, um, but just for some of our listeners who, you know, maybe are interested in considering like, hey, there's so many different information security opportunities out there. Um, Just to give people kind of a flavor, here's what a day in the life might look like at a large financial services organization versus, um, you know, at a really fast moving sort of SaaS startup. Yeah, I think it's really dependent on everyone's individual role and what what vertical you're in, but you definitely see more silos in large organizations. That's just a generality. Uh, but when you're talking top tier financial services, I think one of the main differences for me is kind of the regulatory presence as well as the audit presence. And, and with that, you know, for me, I, I can't tell you how many times I had to reiterate or represent the same PowerPoint slides on the application security program uh, at Capital One and the phenomenal team I had there with me that we grew, you know, one by one, we kept growing. And to tell the story, to tell the narrative, and to deal with the regulator, and I, I can reflect back on really strong cases. Uh, one was trying to explain why you don't track every static analysis issue um, in some vulnerability management tracking tool. And I, I fundamentally argued this thing over and over at every org I've been at, except for the one I'm at now. But a coding flaw is much different than an actual exploitable vulnerability when it's just a code in source. Um, you don't know what the exposure is. And I remember going through that dialogue, having that educational aspect. It was a very intriguing sort of narrative and discussion to go through. And, and later on, I had similar reverberations around component analysis and open source uh, within many organizations. So one of the things I worked on at Capital One was really looking at the build of materials, the composition of software. And with it, you know, you start digging in deep of like, what is what, what are the vulnerabilities in the open source we're using? You know, what is the license risk of some of the legalities of using some of this open source? Are we contributing back? Are we just consuming? Did we make profit and now we owe someone money? You know, I think there are different scenarios when it comes to licensing. Uh, you also have the sort of the health risk. So if you're consuming open source and the library hasn't been touched for 11 years and then there's all these vulnerabilities, remediating that is not as easy. And then you have the transitive risk. So if you look at Hartley and OpenSSL, you have scenarios where you know, you get the question of, did you address everything for Hartley? And everyone's like, yes, we did all our scanning. Ty's team did this, that team did that. And I stand there and I'm like, hey, by the way, the, you know, we have all this, <laughs> all this code that's still using OpenSSL. We, we can't say that firmly, but for the services we have exposed with high confidence, yes, but with it internally, I think that's an element where, you know, I, I look at someone like uh, 
Brian Orr, my career, did a phenomenal job. He was my, the guy that hired me at Capital One. He's an active mentor. He's over to a guy point security now. And uh, just just someone I, I emulated, strive to be like, just an amazing gentleman. And, and with it, he educated me on the power of communication and inclusivity. So I kind of turned a page uh, with Capital One that I spent that time with regulators, with our internal audit, with our external audit, with anyone else that wanted to know about the program and the power of educating and communicating and really bringing people along for the journey. So the art of storytelling, I think really became part of my DNA. I, I attribute a lot of that to him because he, he gave me, you know, some tough tests, but at the same time, he provided me a lot of great guidance to a better storyteller with real-time feedback with examples and just by showing how it's done and I think that's one of those big differences now I'm in a startup and uh, you know people don't ask me to make PowerPoints but if I'm telling a narrative I will use slides um, I will whiteboard but I still go back to the base fundamentals of socializing an idea presenting it getting buy-in and coming back to the fundamental aspect of change leadership of how am I driving change organizational influence and uh, I think that's the difference uh, it's it's not as much you know shine you get to just get a lot of stuff done uh, within the startup space and while that socialization is great um, I don't have to present as much I don't have to prove myself as much uh, I was hired for a reason uh, which is a, a statement that, that I kind of latch on to uh, like most folks in startups you're hired for a reason and you're trusted go get it done right yeah very cool I think you know, you've touched on a really important point, which is that we work in this industry that exists because of technology, because of computing, because of the internet. But some of the most interesting problems to solve are not necessarily the technical ones. And and you're you're the type of person who's gone really deep in terms of your practitioner experience um, that you can tell uh, for the listener listeners of our podcast I'd like to refer you actually to Ty's um, talk that he did at B-Slides Minneapolis a couple years ago uh, for anyone who's interested in extremely practical advice about how to integrate security into a DevOps organization. Check out that talk that Ty does. But I think, you know, you've hit on something really critical that to be a successful agent for change, you have to figure out how to connect with people. Um, and to that effect, Ty, I'd actually like to ask you about your thoughts on some of the words that we use to talk about the relationship between security teams and DevOps organizations. Yeah. You know, they're, they're these buzzwords, right? So we've got DevOps. Some people like to use the term DevSecOps. You know, some people like might even love it if it were like Sec, 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 DevOps, you know, so, so what's the deal and what are your thoughts on, you know, an effective approach to doing security in these really fast moving environments where there's a lot of automation going on and there is not, I would say, the luxury of sort of these slow and hard security gates as there have been in the past um, yeah. or, or as there continue to be, you know, in more traditional waterfall software development shops. 
Yeah, uh, that's that's. I don't know if it's a pain point for me, but it's just definitely been a sticking point. And you know, I think when it comes to anything security, uh, we have this tendency to want to the word security or sex somewhere on there. And I don't know if it's intrinsically that we feel more secure by, you know, latching this thing on or injecting that word in there. But if you look at the heart of DevOps, and, and this, I'll give you the practical lesson in a second, but if, if you look at the heart of DevOps, quality is built within there, which means security is built within quality, which means DevOps is, is already secure. And what I mean by that is that fundamentals should be within the DNA of development operations coming together. For security to latch on security at the beginning, the middle, the end, um, I worked with this brilliant gentleman, uh, Topo Tapabrata, who's still a Capital One, pioneering a lot of open source projects and just getting out there, spreading the gospel and doing a phenomenal job. And he was a great partner uh, that I had a chance to work with. But, you know, one of the dumbest lessons, but the thing I point at is I making wiki pages and asking my team to make wiki pages called DevOpsSec. And then we had this DevOps environment for education and learning. And then we had DevOpsSec, which was education and learning. But with a security twist that then just pointed to a lot of process, but then pointed back to our secure coding guidelines, we do penetration tests, and it's just fed back into the security realm. So it was like this intermediary gap where we had two places of reference for no real lift. And, and when I took a stop and a step back, even the naming moniker, we started duplicating documentation. And, and that to me was, look, if you look at the tenants of DevOps, if you look at the tenants of the Agile Manifesto, it's dialogue over documentation. And I think when you have that real connection and that relationship, it's important to just recognize if I'm just part of the solution and I'm just part of this movement, we're, we're doing it, right? If I have to, outwardly say this word within this other movement that's happening, I'm doing it wrong. And the same thing could be said for, you know, the secure SDLC or the secure product development lifecycle. It's just the software development lifecycle. And, and fu fundamentally to me, this is an intrinsic thing that, you know, real practitioners that are delivering value, deploying product services, um, when you come into the fold, they'd rather have you just be at the table than another table on the side that has the word security sitting next to it. I like to be with peers, work with them aggressively towards the same goal. And I think you're gonna accomplish a lot more by just being part of the solution and part of the movement. So for me, I, I get stuck on that one. I'm trying to move on from it, but it's just DevOps. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, to me, it's actually striking the humility that you bring to the table um, throughout our conversation, which I can't believe we're like so close to the end of the, today's <laughs> podcast, it feels like we've only been talking for about five minutes. You have referenced and sort of, you know, paid respect to so many people along the way who've helped you out. Um, and I think that uh, the humility that you bring, you know, makes you sort of that much more of an effective uh, security leader. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, and, you know, I think it's just like anyone, you, Carolyn, and I, I know you have a lot of strong mentors. And, you know, I always talk with folks about having your own personal board of advisors. You know, it's not always static. It's not always the same people. I have a collection of maybe three to five people, um, but really one to two that I'm always kind of bouncing ideas off of um, having a chat. And maybe it's not every week, maybe it's not every month, but every quarter uh, when they're in town or I'm in town or we just make the time to talk over the phone. 
it's it's really critical to kind of exchange that knowledge and get that feedback or sometimes just stay grounded but you know to think that uh, i could have done any of this on my own building any of these programs on my own is, is ludicrous um it's always paying homage to the folks that you're really working with and i think security is one of those where we end up in this weird place because sometimes you get into a security role where you actually don't do anything and you tell people to do stuff or follow some compliance. I am the least fan of approach. And I, I understand there are scenarios where you don't want me typing code and submitting PRs, but it's going to happen. I'm going to do it. But I think that's the element that, that you really have to pay respect to the culture and the, the impact of the work that the folks around you, above you, had and uh, I, I definitely reflect on those folks because everyone has added to that essence of you that being of you at that time very cool ty one last question for you today with regards to devops there's a lot of buzz around this whole shift left movement and certainly one of the very attractive things about devops is how much automation can get us further when it comes to security what are your thoughts on how much can really be automated versus are there some things that actually require something manual in order to do security right? Yeah, um, you know, I, I like the buzzwords. I, I latch onto them myself. But when it comes to kind of this scenario, I, I like the statement of being tool agnostic and problem specific. I've been saying this for a long time throughout my career. And what I mean by that is when you choose to solve a problem, say through automation, you have to understand what your goal is in mind. I think there are a lot of folks out there uh, that sometimes get caught up with that buzzword therapy or maybe that bright and shiny startup or that tool that everyone else is using. And they want to just deploy it because everyone's doing it or it seems cool. Uh, but they sometimes don't have the problem they're trying to solve well-defined. And I think that's an element where sometimes if you need to do you know, a code review, sometimes if your deployment process is one year to get code out the door, maybe it could be manual and you don't need to have those big engines running all the time to do static analysis uh, with some vendor. Uh, maybe it can be an open source solution to get that job done. And I, I think you have to look at your drivers. And I think you've done a phenomenal job you know, the goal question method and GQM overall, when you look at metrics, you're always kind of working backwards from that goal. And I think when it comes to automated versus manual, Carolyn, I, I think it's, it's dependent on each problem you're really trying to solve. So, uh, you know, ebb and flow, there's good and bad to each one. But again, I, I always come back to the culture of the organization. And sometimes that human element of a manual pen test is going to be much more powerful uh, than running, say, a big scanner to find all your open source components that no one's ever going to fix uh, the build materials. So I look at tangible, actionable results that can lead to fundamental change in a very positive way. Ty, thank you. This has been so much fun. Um, we're definitely going to have to have you back on the show because I know there's so much more for us to talk about. Um, but just to give sort of our listeners, you know, a taste of your experience and the way in which you think about these things. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, my last thing is just an offer. Uh, as a person in the industry that's gone through different ups and downs and positives and negatives, uh, I think if anyone ever wants to chat, reach out. 
um, feel free to do so. Twitter, Instagram, I suck on, but LinkedIn is one of those places I'm, I'm considered in my mind, uh, pretty good at communicating and having a lot of those interactions with. But, you know, for me, it's in person, it's over coffee. It's really having that, that discussion. Awesome. Thanks again, Ty. Thank you, Carolyn. Caroline mentioned Ty's B-Sides Minneapolis talk. If you're interested in watching this talk or exploring more resources mentioned in this podcast, you can sign up for our Humans of InfoSec recap at resource.cobalt.io slash humans of InfoSec. You can also find us on Twitter at humans of InfoSec. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen testing as a service company.